Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond the solar system to explore distant, weird and wonderful extrasolar worlds. Uh, coming up on the show this month, uh, I'm going to take a dive into water worlds. Uh, Hugh will be chatting with our special guest, science writer Lee Billings, and Hannah is on the news desk, so stay tuned for news and updates from her. But first, let's introduce the Exocast cast. Uh, I'm Andrew Rushby, and I study the climates of small worlds in the galaxy from the University of California, Irvine. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I look for transiting exoplanets from the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille in France. And I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I try to characterise and understand the atmospheres of exoplanets at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. So it's been a, a couple of months since our last our last show. We, we've all been busy doing Christmas and various family-related science things as well. Um, so what about you, Hannah? What have you been up to? Where have you been? How have things been? Yeah, things have been good. Things have been productive. Had a couple of papers finally come out after working on them all last year so congratulations (laughs) getting getting all of that done and all of that signed off and then of course starting the year off with double as a very intense week of uh, science and networking and communication and uh, lots of extra stuff that you have to do for that so it was a really long what does double as stand for again astronomical society of america or, yeah the yeah. american astronomical society that's the one and there's two meetings a year right there are yeah. the winter meeting is far more popular and there's so much that goes on so the winter meeting's really the place to be and that's what we had this year in seattle uh it was good fun it was absolutely exhausting though uh i was doing 10 12 hour days every single day so i was just like i was done with it when we were finished <laughs> yeah no that's fair but lots, yeah. of, lots of exciting news coming out, I saw, and I'm sure we'll cover some of that later in the show. How have, how's your month been? How was your break from Exocast? Mine's been great. Um, not, not, not the break from Exocast, of course, I miss it every day. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I was back in England, you know, yep, just doing family things, trying to work on a couple of papers myself. Uh, I missed AAS this time, uh, but hopefully uh, next, uh, either the spring meeting or the, uh, the winter meeting, I'll, uh, I'll be there. Got some, got some things to... Uh, to hopefully show the world um so i uh, try to try to spend a little time with the family as well get some get some personal time hopefully the same you, for you. and me of course <laughs> so me and andrew actually met up in norwich which was quite weird because i mean we're both kind of from the same city but i've never seen him in the city so <laughs> we joked in the pub that we were the only exoplanet astronomers in the entire city at that moment which is probably true it's <laughs> yeah, probably not far off actually maybe one of my advisors from uea could arguably call himself an exoplanet astronomer. okay but, uh, sure. it's, it would be a push i think even he would admit that but yeah so we had a great time had a couple of uh i had a mulled cider it's very del- delicious spice cider from a little little bar in uh, in norwich we had a good chat that's it's what really, it's all really about really cool to see you <laughs> I'm yeah. just not used to seeing him not on a computer screen. Um, so <laughs> we still haven't all been in the same room. We need to make no. That's time never that, happened. So. We need to make that happen. It's bizarre, point. isn't it? Bizarre. Right. Anyway, I think it's time that we get on with the show. And Indeed. this month, Hugh is welcoming a guest into the Exocast studio. So, Hugh, take it away. So this month we have Lee Billings joining us from New York, I believe. Is that right? <laughs> So he's a scientific writer, a science writer at Scientific American and a writer of the popular science book Five Billion Years of Solitude, which was came out, I think, four years ago now, and among other things, won the American Institute of Physics Best Science Book for that year. So welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for having me, Hugh. It's uh, an honor and pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you and Andrew and Hannah. It's a pleasure to have you on. So so what's your kind of background? Do you have a um, a... Uh, a background in astronomy, or did you go through the sort of journalistic path into science journalism? Uh, well, I, I don't have a PhD. I'm, I'm definitely more of the PhD didn't persuasion. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted, I really wanted to be an astronomer and and uh, or an astrophysicist. And, and pretty early on, as I was going through my basic uh, prerequisites in, in uh, my freshman year of college, I realized, hey, I'm. Um, I'm not that great at uh, at math, and for that matter, a lot of quantitative thinking. My my brain's bad, so um, <laughs> I uh, I immediately switched over to uh, an alternate track and and started pursuing journalism. And I, I kind of fell into science journalism um, just because 
uh, I really, you know, th those stories of, of scientists and their discoveries and their work really appealed to me. Uh, and so I, I was at a, a research uh, university at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Um, lots of biotech stuff going on there, a little bit of astronomy. Uh, and I, I started working for the school paper and doing faculty and staff affairs. And I, I managed to twist that into just doing profiles of scientists at the, at the university. So that's how it all started. Um, and then I, I've kind of followed my love and passion for astronomy uh, into, you know, uh, now covering space and physics for Scientific American and also obviously the book, which is mostly about exoplanets. So it seems like at the moment you have pretty much freedom to write um, these beautiful well-researched stories about what you want. Is that, is that kind of the, the thing? Or, or are you kind of um, told to go off and write about this specific topic? Uh, well, um you know, I, I may have some uh, some privilege there to 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 select my own stories. Uh, I do have a little bit of autonomy, but naturally, um, when you're in in the science journalism business, a lot of what you write is going to be dictated by uh, the news of the day, the stories that seem to be prevailing, the narratives that 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 come about from from events that take place around the world. Uh, which is just to say that, you know, if you're swimming in the middle of a of a huge river. Um, that's flowing downstream at a really rapid pace. How much how much autonomy do you really have when you're in, in the middle of that stream? So what I write about uh, is largely dictated by things like uh, the embargo schedules, uh, sure. publishing schedules for journals, um, and, and occasional um, just news events. You know, if the space station uh, fell out of the sky tomorrow, I, I would probably end up writing about that, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> Um, but but I do have some some autonomy and flexibility there, which which is nice. So when you look at these embargo lists and uh, and all of the things that are kind of streaming past, it must be a huge amount of information. What are you looking for in that? What is it that catches your eye and, and makes you want to write an article on it? Uh, well, uh, one thing that 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 I look for a lot is is novelty um, and and significance. Uh, you know, a lot of things that come out because there is such a huge, never-ending, gushing stream of of findings and results and cool reports. Uh, a lot of it doesn't really have obvious uh, significance to the layperson, um, and 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 that doesn't mean it's not there. But uh, you know, when you're when you're dealing in a when you're in a resource-constrained environment where you have only so much time and only so much energy in any given day, uh, it's going to be, uh, it might be wiser to pursue stories that, that have clear and obvious significance or that at least their, their significance can be unpacked by the researchers involved rather than having to really pull teeth to try to get someone to explain what the real takeaway of any particular result is and, and why it matters. Um, so, so I look for resonance with readers. I think about um, the kinds of stories, if I were a reader, I would want to see and read uh, and, you know, what, what just seems interesting. So it's a very subjective thing, but it's also, there is some objectivity to it um, because you can usually link stories with clear takeaways and obvious significance to higher levels of readership um, via various traffic metrics. Do you think that this potentially leads to, I don't know, hype stuff on always leading to aliens? And that's something we discuss here on Exocast a lot is just the fact that all of the articles that annoy us the most are probably the ones that just immediately <laughs> quote aliens as the the thing. And that does relate to people. But is is do you think that it, that's required because that is that is something that's really different from actually trying to project these scientific ideas. Well, I think this gets back to the question of uh, or, or the definition of significance. You know, um, I, I would counter that that a, a lot of the stories that are that are you know kind of scare quoting aliens um, uh, about various developments, whether that's something like uh, Tabby Star, Boyajian Star, or um, or you know something like Oumuamua, the first. Um, you know, interstellar interloper in our solar system, uh, they aren't really, you know, the claims they're making aren't necessarily that significant in terms of uh, actually being evidence-based. Um, and, and so I think it's very important to, uh, when, I, when you think about significance and what that means, uh, to, to, to my operational definition is more about, um, you know, what, what sorts of claims can you actually make that are derived from evidence and that stand up to scrutiny of, you know, peer review and things like that. Uh, doesn't mean I don't report on preprints or I don't report on things that, you know, people have, have just simply said um, <laughs> in the public domain. Um, but that the significance angle is pretty significant there <laughs> for me. So so I so I tend not to um, try to wade too quickly into things, you know, stories that are just making wild, <laughs> um, wild claims about aliens and stuff like that. 
So um, would you say that, going on from the sort of hype stuff that Hannah was mentioning there, would you say that it's it's like more the scientist's fault for putting out these potentially wrong hypotheses about subjects that are too um, you know, contentious? Or do you think it's journalism's fault that these these um, these papers get sort of overhyped? Well, why not both? Yeah, yeah. that's what <laughs> yeah. I was thinking. I was I like, think uh, fault yeah. is a very strong word, uh, but also yeah. it's a responsibility from both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, one, one other aspect of this is we have things like, like you know, the authors of papers, we have um, the the public consuming the papers we have uh you know people like me the journalists reporting on the findings of the papers uh, let's not forget uh another very important player in this in this ecosystem which is the publishers exactly. the publishers of those papers um that's immensely important and and you know i i, I can't i don't quite know the exact gist of the joke but i know there's a running gag uh amongst uh several of my astronomy and planetary science uh friends where they'll basically say oh well it appeared in, you know, world leading journal X. Well, I give it a half life of, you know, three months <laughs> or three weeks or six months before it's, it's you know, shown to be baloney. Uh, I think that there's um, this is maybe particularly a problem for very high impact journals where um, any, for anything to get into those journals, uh, it needs to be pretty sexy, pretty novel, pretty, uh, yeah. pretty groundbreaking. And the trouble is, is when you're pushing the envelope in any field like that, uh, you're going to, you're not going to bat a thousand. You're going to have some misses. You're going to have some mistakes. You're going to have some things that look, look good and smell fresh and seem very positive. And then a little bit of further work, uh, will show that they're not, um, all they were initially cracked up to be. Uh, so I think that, that a lot of people make the mistake, um, less on the science side, more on the journalism and the public side of just looking at a name, a journal like nature or science and equating that with truth equating that with um with significance and 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 validity and the record shows <laughs> that's not always the case right yeah that's true so um so you said that your role is basically astronomy and physics but it seems like well obviously you have a a passion for exoplanets is that because of this angle of what the public is is most interested in is is sort of this discovery from exoplanets or is that more of a personal uh, enjoyment you get from from that field uh, I, I, you know, I'd like to say that that exoplanets, above all other things, are just the coolest, <laughs> the coolest thing in all of science. I'm pretty sure um, we would agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Of course. So, 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 I'd love to say that that's that's objectively true. But you know, there's there's definitely a, a personal. Um, I, I think I could. I'm comfortable saying bias here. I think I have a personal bias towards. Uh, covering exoplanets. I mean, in part because you know you you to some degree write about what you know. Um, uh, I mean, I can go you know, write a story about all kinds of other topics I, I can and do on a regular basis. Um, but there's something nice about f- seeing a paper um, or talking with a researcher. And just due to my own experience, my own um, depth of experience in covering that topic, being able to very quickly turn out something that's that's high quality, um, that's nuanced, that, that goes into uh, maybe delves into some details that aren't included in other reports. So I, I enjoy that. And that's kind of a, you know, a vain thing. But um, that's something I like to do. So that's one reason why I gravitate towards exoplanets a lot, because I simply have a lot of experience there writing about them. Um, but on the other hand, I, I would just like to say, uh, without being too long winded, that, yeah, I, I do think that. Um, in terms of uh, stories that really resonate with the public, um, exoplanets are definitely up there, but but not all exoplanets, right? Uh, only a kind of a relatively small, uh, blinkered subset of exoplanets. Um, not, you know, if it w- there's this great term that was coined by um, my uh, my science journalism peer uh, Corey Powell some years ago, where he was talking about exoplanet fatigue uh, and it's a real phenomenon um you know the the field has been so very successful over the past uh uh two decades or so that uh the the bar that has been moved a whole lot the needle has shifted on to what const- what constitutes news what constitutes significance in in the field so you know it used to be that just finding a planet at all would be a front page news story and get you a slot on um you know um a late night talk show even on national television now uh you know you can announce hundreds of planets in one day from one mission. And that may not make the front page. It may only make the science section in a story right. below the fold. Mm-hmm. So so um, the public gets, gets pretty uh, jaded to these things very quickly. But we haven't entered full saturation yet. We haven't 
you know, really, I, I think, tapped out exoplanets and their potential for, for public amazement anywhere close. That's good to hear. And I think we actually, we run into that problem ourselves, actually, when we're trying to do the news, when we're trying to condense down just a month's worth of news, we can occasionally have, you know, dozens of planets, or as you say, sometimes hundreds of planets to discuss. (laughs) There's no way we can mention every single one of them by name, because there's just so much going on. So, you know, selfishly, I'm really hoping that we're pushing that kind of news cycle towards what we're characterizing about them, what we're learning about them very specifically for each of these worlds. So that's my selfish goal in all of this. Yeah, I, I think the story is more, I mean, for me, it's definitely more about the, the broader contextual uh, landscape in which these individual discoveries happen. Um, so it's it, for me, it's more about this this journey that we're on towards finding uh, planets that might be a bit more like Earth. Um, what does Earth-like mean? Dot, dot, dot. That's a big open question that we all have, and we all have our own favorite operational definitions. But we all agree that we are in this quest, that we are on this journey, that it is important, I think, to some degree, if for no other reason than engaging with the public, because, uh, you know, the public funds so much of this science. So um, I, I'm mostly interested in, in, in that, that narrative sweep, and, and, and each little individual discovery along the way um, is great. But I, I, I kind of, you know, I don't know if we're ever going to see, at least in my lifetime anyway, some kind of legit holy grail discovery where it would actually constitute the end of that journey. You know, you could always imagine doing more, deeper characterization, building a bigger telescope to look at some even cooler planet. Um, you know, so it, it's a journey that never ends, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think maybe um, researching your, your book, which we already mentioned, Five uh, Billion Years of Solitude, great book, uh, do you think that maybe gave you that, that overall perspective uh, to try and you know, see things in the more contextual um, you know, they're, they're, they're en route to the journey, really. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, it was it, it was that context, being sensitive to that context, that really uh, got got me interested in the uh, the topic and, and the book in the first place. Um, uh, there was this moment, it happened about, I guess, 2007. I've told this story several times, um, but I'll, I'll tell it again really quickly here. Um, where I was talking with um, an astrophysicist named uh, Greg Laughlin, um, who was at the is and is was at the University of Santa Cruz, is now at Yale, um, and uh, I was talking to him um, as a consultant for uh, this this infographic we were working on about exoplanet detection methods and stuff, and uh, we needed a little graph, some kind of um, thing that would show a trend in the field um, uh, based on data. And he said, well, how about, you know, for this little box on this one page you're, you're working on, how about you do something like graph the year-by-year uh, record for smallest uh, known or least massive known exoplanet? You know, graph that. And I did. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's this very lovely graph. You draw a trend line through it, and you can see, you know, the, the, the average planet of, or the, the record-holding planet is getting smaller and smaller every year. And you draw a trend line, and it showed, I think, that we would be finding, you know, Earth mass, Earth-sized planets in... Was it 2011 or 2012? It was a remarkable moment, though, back in 2007, where I just saw this, you know, data-based trend right before my eyes, and it very clearly forecast that we would really be entering, imminently entering this era in which we were discovering and soon characterizing potentially Earth-like planets. Um, That just blew my mind. Um, And then I got deeper and deeper into the world behind that, all the efforts behind that, all the decades of work behind that, um, some of the personalities, and, and then it just kind of blossomed from there. But um, yeah, uh, so I, I definitely became more aware of, of this grand quest we're on while I was writing the book, but I, it was the impetus from the very beginning. Are there any sort of personalities, as you mentioned, or science results that have happened since you published that book that you would want to include if you if you did, I don't know, five five point zero 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 one billion years of solitude, or whatever <laughs> the sequel would be? <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I don't really even know where to begin. I, 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 I will say this is kind of something that, that um, you know, neither my uh, agent uh, nor uh, my publishers are particularly happy with me about. Um, I, I do want to write a sequel, but it doesn't seem like the time is right yet uh, because um, we're all kind of waiting. We're all kind of uh, twiddling our thumbs and I think waiting for the, the, the looming debut of next generation facilities and instruments that are really going to push us uh, to the next level um, of of discovery, um, and and so that's something that I'm still waiting on. That I kind of thought maybe we'd already be into by now here in 2019. You know, I was thinking that that James Webb, for instance, would already be up uh, taking taking data yeah, so and looking at uh, you know transiting uh, super Earths around nearby M dwarfs and stuff. And, and lo and behold, now it's going to be 2021 at best. Similar story with uh, the ELTs, the extremely large telescopes, um, the ones that have you know 30 meter diameter mirrors or in that range on the ground, you know, uh, those were, I think, originally going to be 
coming online uh, in the early part of the 2020s. Now we're looking at, you know, the later part of the 2020s for, for most of them, it seems. Um, if they get built at all, you know, looking at, at the 30-meter telescope and all the problems it's had at uh, Mauna Kea. Um, uh, things that have actually occurred since the book came out um, that I'd like to include other than things like, you know, programmatic issues um, and delays with, with um, interesting pieces of kit. Uh, the, the one regret I have is that, is that the book mentions uh, the discovery of a planet around uh, Alpha Centauri. Um, <laughs> Alpha Centauri uh, B in particular. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, the book mentions that and, and kind of says, well, hey, this is something that seems to have happened. It appears legit. Of course, um, you all know, and hopefully your listeners will know, that there, there is no known planet now around Alpha Centauri B. Um, it, it disappeared in a, a puff of stellar noise. Um, and it looks now like it was illusory, a product of, you know, um, uh, stellar activity cycles, um, maybe some aliasing in there, so on and so forth. I mean, I know we're getting into tech. Yeah, I mean, we discussed one... that on a previous exocast. Uh, Hugh likes to talk about killing yeah. planets all the time. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one thing I'd like to, I, I would like to update. Another thing would be just um, a few other discoveries, such as, um, you know, the discovery of a planet around uh, the Earth's very nearest neighboring star, other than the Sun and other than um, Alpha Centauri, uh, uh, Proxima Centauri. You know, we do know of a planet there. It does look legit. Um, and then Similarly, uh, the the next nearest star outside of the Alpha Centauri system, uh, Barnard Star. We now know that there's a, a planet around that one too. Again, looking the data looks pretty solid, and in both cases cases these are planets that just maybe are in some uh, some ill-defined habitable zone, and uh, you know are, are more or less the the size of Earth. They're they're relatively rocky, probably. Uh, I, I mean, I guess Barnard Star. I'm trying to remember the exact mass estimate there and the error bars, but. <laughs> yeah, um, but those are things I'd like to include um, in any update of the book because it just it really shows and demonstrates this trend that we're seeing where planets are falling out of the sky. They're everywhere we look um, in all sorts, uh, you know, dizzying variety. And, and, and the, the message is, is clearer than ever before that uh, the planets, even potentially Earth-like, even potentially habited, even potentially inhabited planets um, uh, are, are out there for us to find if we just go look for them hard enough. Um, so that's immensely exciting to me, and I, I would love to include those things in some update of the book, but more than likely it'll be in a sequel that will come out who knows when. Okay, well, watch this space, I guess. Um, I think, <laughs> yeah, well, thank you very much for coming on, Lee. Uh, it's been great to have you on, and if anyone hasn't read Five Billion Years of Solitude, then I would definitely recommend it either for professionals, it definitely told me a few, few things I didn't know, mm -hmm. or for, for you know general public trying to get into to this field that we love. But yeah, thank you very much, Lee. Although, of course, we'll hear from you a little bit later when you adopt a planet. Oh, excellent. Great. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you all, and I'm happy to do it anytime, as much as you'd like. I could be on every <laughs> single episode if you want. No. <laughs> so... Moving on now, Andrew, you're going to talk about um, Waterworld, which I think is the sequel to the 1984 film Waterworld, right? Uh, I think so, although wasn't it 1996? <laughs> it was quite recent. I don't know. More recent than 1984, I think. Um, I, thought it, I thought it was 80s, that Waterworld, with Kevin Costner, right? With Kevin Costner, yeah, it was a 90s film. Anyway, Hugh, we can, we can oh. discuss this <laughs> at some other point, but yes, I would like to talk... 95? Um, yeah, I'd like to talk about Waterworld. Uh, not the sequel to the 1995 Kevin Costner film, but um, a very interesting type of world that we've uh, touched on before on Exocast. Um, we've, we've, we've not gone into a huge amount of detail, so I think it might be time for a little bit more of a proper introduction. So it makes sense, I guess, to maybe think about definitions or the type of water worlds that exist even in our solar system, because we do have a few, um, and you know, consider maybe hypothetical ocean-covered planets that could exist elsewhere in the galaxy. But let's start with that definition. What is a water world? Well, um, you know, the terms water world, aqua planet, ocean planet, some combination of those are often used um, interchangeably to refer to uh, it's a terrestrial planet, a rocky planet, but that has globally abundant liquid water. Um, so that, that, that's the important bit, the globally abundant uh, definition. Um, so similar to the, the Earth as it ex exists now with its 70% uh, surface ocean coverage, um, you know, this is this is the kind of planet that we're looking for. And in fact, the, does the that Earth count is actually, as a water world? Like, what is actually, there a percentage line? Well, I'm going to try and touch on that a little bit later. But I would say that the Earth is actually quite dry, and I think there's probably exactly. a lot of other folks who would agree with that. Um, maybe it should. 
um, you know, a lot of folks think, oh, you know, 70% ocean, ocean coverage should be called water or aqua as opposed to earth, but it's only 0.002% by weight water, which is actually, you know, quite, quite low. Um, and certainly by comparison to even the outer solar system um, moons like Enceladus and Europa and their hypothetical oceans, um, it's actually quite, quite dry uh, as a planet. So maybe, you know, 70% um, surface ocean coverage, slight error bars, things go up and down during uh, different, you know, global cooling or warming periods. Um, it's not actually a huge amount, but maybe it's important. Maybe that ratio is, is fundamentally important for, um, you know, for the development of life, for example. Maybe having a, uh, both a, 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 an ocean as well as a terrestrial or an exposed rock surface is actually quite important for things like biogeochemical cycling. Um, which some folks have hypothesized you need both uh, exposed rock or exposed land as well as ocean. Um, so, I mean, I think a dry, a dry planet is one that's, at least in the literature defined, as one that doesn't have any globally abundant uh, water, but could still have some locally abundant water. So, I mean, Mars might actually fit that definition with its, uh, you know, water ice poles. Um, but also, you could think for sci-fi, uh, if you want to take a, a sci-fi route, uh, something like Herbert's Dune would be considered a dry desert planet. There's still some water there, um, but it's not, it's not globally abundant. But on the other side of that extreme, um, we've started to differentiate between aqua and water planets now, um, primarily based on the amount of water, which is generally measured in units of Earth's oceans, which is... Uh, typically, uh, typically Earth-centric of us, um, and I, I guess it's a good way to you know get a relative idea about what the what the kind of uh, magnitudes of oceans we're talking about here. Um, so the latter term, i.e. the um, the the water planet, um, is is generally about thirty-five times uh, what we have in terms of oceans on the Earth. That's kind of the 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 limit, and there's a geophysical reason for that. Uh, a lot of this comes from modeling work uh, from Steve Desch's group uh, in Arizona. Um, but above this this kind of 35 um, limit, 35 ocean, uh, Earth ocean limit, um, it's hypothesized that you'll get this high pressure water ice layer forming uh, at the bottom of the ocean, which, uh, you know, adds some interesting geophysical uh, uh, confusion, let's put it that way. It's going to make things very difficult um, or very interesting for, for stuff like plate tectonics, for silicate melting. Um, and you could even go up higher to something like 100 oceans uh, worth of, uh, of water on a planet might be sufficient to suppress silicate melting and just slow down geophysical processes, which have to be important for maintaining things like habitability. So while the Earth is the only planet in our solar system that has this abundant liquid water on the surface, um, I've already mentioned some of the outer moons, uh, like Ganymede and Europa and Enceladus. These exhibit ex uh, evidence of extensive liquid water reservoirs, um, you know, at some depth beneath these icy shells. The thickness of the shell still not entirely clear. Now, the great thing about these is that the chemical composition, the circulation, the contents of these oceans are of extreme interest extreme interest. I can't put enough effort uh, on that uh, to astrobiologists, to planetary scientists. Um, because one, how much water they have. Two, the very unique kind of circumstances in which that water finds itself. So it's beneath this icy shell. Um, uh, you know, it might have like direct mantle to ocean floor kind of contact, a lot of geophysical or geochemical exchange going on there. There's uh, possibly um, ox oxidized products coming from um, the ice shell itself, which is being heavily radiated by uh, either Saturn or Jupiter. So there's just, it's a really interesting chemical soup. Um, and, you know, we have these in our solar system, and this is not often something we can talk about on Exocast. When we want to think about a super Earth, for example, we don't have one of those. Uh, or a or hot Jupiter, we don't have one. But we do have several water worlds, including the Earth, in our solar system, which gives us an opportunity to explore the, the range at which these, um, the kind of parameter space over which these worlds can exist. And this is great, actually, because it, um, it helps us to understand, looking at planets, a planet's water anyway, helps us to understand how, when, and to some degree where they formed, which is an incredible insight to have. Gives us, um, you know, a window into the formation of uh, our solar system, if we're looking at the worlds in, in our solar system, or even other star systems, um, once we have the opportunity to possibly study the water inventory of other planets. Um, 
so in the case of the Earth, we can we can determine that our water was likely delivered by cometary bodies, asteroids during the the early history of the solar system and the and the planet's formation. And we can do that by assessing the isotopic ratio of the deuterium to hydrogen of the water in our oceans and, and freshwater reservoirs. Uh, we can compare that, of course, to then cometary or other water-rich bodies in the solar system. And that's why it's so important to visit these and why we have, you know, um, spacecraft like New Horizons that are actually visiting these worlds. I think the recent science says that... Um there's some small amount that's brought by comets, right? It's only like as much as 10% that's brought by distant comets. And the other 90% had to have come from closer reservoirs of water like asteroids. I think that's the current thinking. Yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of the information coming from the Rosetta mission from ESA was something that uh, really was used to try and learn about where water is coming from. That's one of the big questions that is kind of drove some of the stuff that they were doing with the Kuiper Belt objects as well with uh, the New Horizons mission. So it's like a really big open question. Where yeah. did the water come from and how, how much of it needed to be delivered that way? And pr prior to that mission, we thought we kind of had the, the, the DH ratio pretty well down. Um, we could look at, you know, the DH ratio of, uh, of the outer solar system planets. We, there was a, a scaling, basically, that you could use. But um, studying 69P, for example, really threw off our ideas about the DH ratio because it was way off from what we would expect. Um, the theory is that the, the ratio is is initially fraction, uh, you know, kind of fractionated in the hot inner region of a protoplanetary disk where, you know, isotopic exchange reactions occur with other hydrogen-bearing species. Uh, and then once that, that water is already bound up in the planet, other hydrological cycle uh, features can then further fractionate it. So you get uh, less deuterium and more hydrogen over time. So the theory was you could look at that and you could determine you know, where the water came from. It's kind of a fingerprint was, was the theory, but you know, that's all kind of been thrown out the window now um, to some degree, um, or at least we have some pieces of the puzzle that don't necessarily fit. I think still a useful, uh, useful metric and it certainly allows us to even on earth identify separate glacial ice rainwater ocean water freshwater reservoirs just looking at the dh ratio so there is you know a, a still a very useful diagnostic tool there but i think all of this generally points to the fact that water is um is is ubiquitous certainly in, in our solar system but likely in other solar, uh, solar systems too um, and therefore it's not just you know important for for life to use but also to help us to understand the very fundamental uh, fundamentals of planetary science really the reason it's kind of so exciting uh, and ubiquitous and interesting to study is that it's a very simple but complicated molecule right and uh, that you know it's made from you know hydrogen oxygen two very common elements found in in interstellar clouds um although you know initially in the ice phase there of course um and therefore you know extrapolation and some imagination points to the possibility of planets with even higher water content than on the earth uh, at least hypothetically and even potentially very much higher than than what we have on the earth so to put that in context, Europa uh, is estimated to have about twice the Earth's oceans worth of water beneath its icy shell. And considering it's much smaller than, uh, you know, than the Earth, that's, that's an incredible amount of water um, by, by volume. So um, if we look to recent geophysical modeling work, which is you know, beyond actually visiting outer solar system moons, the best we can do right now, um, it suggests that some planets, uh, you know, maybe even the, the now well-known TRAPPIST-1 worlds may have too much water. And we have discussed this on Exocast before. It's not necessarily settled, but we think we could have a, a general discussion about, you know, the fact that there, there may be excess water that could affect geological processes. Uh, and these are primarily the initiation and the um, continuation, if you will, of, of plate tectonics or some analogous kind of cycling process. Um, and this is important because, as I mentioned, there are there is, there's a school of thought that says that we need some land surface. There are certain mineral species, for example, like carbon and phosphorus cycles. These often involve a terrestrial, a terrestrial uh, environment, an element somewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it's pretty important to to have a kind of exposure to the atmosphere at some point to maintain that that cycling. So we think there is an option of having maybe just too much water as well. Um, of course, there remains some uncertainty about the specific limits, uh, about how much is too much, and specifically about the, the Trappist planets and their um, mass radius relationships. But I think there is a general trend in that excess water can affect um, geology, and therefore we should maybe consider it. Um, kind of going from the geology to the biology, uh, oftentimes when we think about water, we think about the habitable zone, and this is somewhere where the, the habitable zone can actually be used because it was always set um, 
uh, you know, in terms of looking for liquid water on the surface of these planets. So even if we weren't looking for life, we could still maybe use it to uh, to look for uh, to look for water. Um, and that was always the theory, anyway. Um, but water worlds offer up some very unique challenges, I think, for finding and detecting the evidence of life. Um, because the high water content on the planet can actually affect the oxygen content of the atmosphere. So we discussed this a little bit at the, um, at the biosignatures, uh, exoplanet biosignatures meeting a couple of years ago, and these came out in a series of papers last year, and I'm sure I covered it on Exocast as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we realized that actually um, planets can become abiotically oxygenated uh, when the hydrogen that is initially bound up in the water in the planet's atmosphere is photolysized and that escapes from the top of the atmosphere. So obviously this process is you know, very contextual, very dependent on the planet itself, uh, as well as other gases in the atmosphere, the behavior of the, the tropospheric cold trap. Uh, but it can, in theory, produce a fully oxygenated, but maybe desiccated uh, atmosphere without any life at all. We, we recently, uh, well, up till recently, it was thought that oxygen was a pretty great biosignature, but finding, um, you know, finding means to abiotically oxygenate an atmosphere really threw some cold water on that. So I would say that, you know, if you want to use oxygen as a biosignature, it has, it has problems anyway, um, but specifically it would have problems uh, when we're looking at water worlds. Um, but that said, there has been some work that's done that allows us to try and figure out if the oxygen that we're seeing is oxygen that's from life or oxygen that's from an abiotic process like this. And there are some diagnostic uh, species that we can look for if we have some, some time in the future, we have amazing spectra that allows us to see things like O4 or, meth or uh, carbon monoxide. One of those two um, species being detected in unison with oxygen will either tell us if it's, if it's a desiccated planet that's been oxygenated by water loss, as in the case of, uh, of carbon monoxide, or if there's other um, species like ozone and O4, which allow us to indicate that it's probably still a moist atmosphere and might be more interesting, maybe something to study you know, for life, potentially. So it's, it's tricky to find life on these worlds, but you know, what might they be like? We can only really consider or, um, or even imagine, we can only really think of, I guess, Europa, Enceladus, those kind of worlds in our, in our solar system as potential outcomes for, uh, for water worlds, possibly the Earth, but I would argue it's actually very dry. So we have this you know, frozen water ice shell overlying these warm liquid oceans, um, you know, maybe with even this direct mantle to ocean geochemical exchange taking place. Is that the only kind of water world that, that, that we could imagine? Well, you know, the, the other potential end member is those ocean-covered planets that still have warm liquid oceans exposed to the atmosphere, no icy shell, maybe in the habitable zone. Um, and these are planets that might have hundreds of Earth's oceans of water overlying this, this mantle, in, in quotes, if you will, of, of high-pressure um, water ice, ice in the high-pressure phase. So the, these, um, these planets might be interesting for a whole range of reasons, not just the fact that they have incredibly deep uh, oceans, but also in that the, the, the water might inhibit some of those geophysical processes that we take for granted, or don't take for granted, but assume are very important for habitability. Um, and the circulations of those oceans, of course, are going to be very important for moving heat around um, and you know, affecting the various chemical processes that will take place. Um, but again, we're probably going to have to look at these worlds on a, on a case by case basis, uh, as with most habitable planets, I think, um, as, as you know, all of this is going to vary by planet size and its rotation, the depth of the ocean. Um, and I think it's now is the time for pioneering exo oceanographers to really tease out some of the important factors that could affect general ocean circulation processes on these worlds and some stuff is being done looking at salinity and heat transport but i think there's a real area in which oceanographers can make a big contribution to characterizing uh planets or, or at least at this stage thinking about hypothetical ocean covered planets because um, we're quite early into the stage and i think it's more um right right now more likely that lab and computer simulations will move things forward but we do have uh, jwst going up soon and this might give us a bit more of an insight into uh, into water worlds, into water in the atmosphere of planets. Um, but I'm myself in not entirely sure as how much we could get from even JWST when it comes to a water world. Maybe a super Earth-sized planet with a with a where that's covered by an ocean, perhaps. Um, but I'm not too sure. Uh, and I'd be interested to hear what what either you or or Hannah think about the observational prospects for water worlds going forward. Yeah, I think it's a a lot that. There's going to, for, for this type of information, it's going to require huge amounts of telescope time for the next decades and, and huge amounts of information about these worlds. Um, 
And I don't know that James Webb's going to do that in the way that we need it to. What I think James Webb's going to be really grateful for these types of worlds is reflected light. Uh, and reflected light investigations are being done right now to see how much we can do with James Webb. So there's definitely going to be some things that we're going to be seeing in the literature soon about that. Uh, and there's a lot that's already there in terms of what kind of uh, information to be looking for for that. But in terms of actual atmospheric characterization of these worlds, that's going to be a little more tricky and, and it's going to require the exact right world to look at and us to know that it's the exact right world to look at, which isn't something that we can know. So that that's where the real big problem comes in with, with these types of worlds and these types of investigations. So it's going to take us a while, but it's not something that we're going to shy away from. No, and again, that maybe think that's why we ha- we're fortunate to have a couple of water worlds in our solar system to help us to uh, you know, understand how they work. Okay, well, that's it for uh, for water world. Uh, but there's been a couple of weeks worth of news, no doubt, to discuss. So I'm going to throw it over to to Hannah for some updates. So we've uh, had Exocast absent for a few months now. So there's huge amounts of science to cover, which we are just physically not able to do for you. But I, I want to cover a couple of really big stories that have happened and uh, discuss some of the really interesting science that's going on. So uh, the first thing I really want to highlight here is something that happened with the Hubble Space Telescope. In On January 8th this year, there was a anomaly that was apparent on the UVIS channel of the Wi-Fi camera free instrument and that suspended operations for that instrument on Hubble. The other instruments uh, continues doing work, but that instrument shut itself down uh, when it detected this anomaly. And um, we've talked about different things uh, on, on this show before to do with Hubble and, and all of the operations. But one thing that really is important about this shutdown is the fact that it happened during another shutdown. Uh, and most of you probably know the US government is shut down at the moment. It has been for a very long time now. And that means that no US or federal employees can work. And that includes NASA employees who work on Hub- the Hubble Space Telescope and work for the Hubble Space Telescope. So. What actually happened during this incident for the wide field camera freeze, we had to bring in people completely unpaid to work for seven solid days they worked to try and get an idea of what had happened and how to fix it. Um, And these, these people worked with people from Space Telescope and they got the instrument back online seven days later. That's actually a really remarkable feat considering how important this instrument is. Wi-Fi Camera 3 is responsible for over 50% of the observations that are conducted with Hubble. That's a, it's, it is the workhorse for the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, and these people came in, they worked for free uh, to really fix this. Uh, and I think that that's really important to highlight. So I wanted to bring that up here. They deserve some praise for that, definitely. Uh, and just to say, as of January 15th, the instrument is back online. Everything's working great. It's currently doing some observations uh, and there's going to be lots of exoplanet science uh, happening with it in the coming years. So I'm, I'm very excited that they were able to get an idea of what was going on uh, and fix that for us. So I wanted to bring that up. Uh, but on to some exoplanet science. Um, there's been a lot of stuff that's come out. There's certainly a whole host of planets that have been discovered, including a number of test planets that have been discovered. And we can certainly expect many more from them as uh, we are releasing sectors three and four at the end of this week. So there's many, many more stars for people to look through and try and find more planets. So we, we hope that those discoveries keep coming And I won't mention every single one of them here, but I I want to talk about a characterization uh, that happened uh, and was uh, released over the Christmas holidays. And this is coming out of the Panchromatic Comparative Exoplanet Treasury Program on Hubble, the the PANSET program. And just a full disclosure, I am part of this program, but I did not lead this study at all. Um, This study was led by Vincent Bourrier, and it was using the STIS instrument on Hubble to look in the ultraviolet. Now, the ultraviolet is able to look at a uh, escaping atmosphere of these planets. So trying to understand the extent of the exospheres of these planets. How far does the atmosphere reach away from these planets? And they looked at a small sub-Neptune sized world called GJ3470b, 3470b. And what they saw was that it has a significant 
escaping atmosphere. This huge cloud of hydrogen was seen in, during transit to be much, much larger than the the kind of the planet looks in the optical. This is evidence that there is a huge amount of hydrogen escaping from this planet's atmosphere. And actually, what was really interesting about this study um, is that they estimate that two to thirty-five percent of the planet's hydrogen has been lost in the last two billion years. Now, this star is anywhere between five and eight billion years old. So that's a huge amount of mass that has been lost from this planet. So when it, if you project that back, when this planet started when this planet was born it was probably even bigger than neptune now i think the big question here is, is why does this matter why do we care about the escaping atmospheres of these planets and the if you look at all of the planets that have been discovered you look in their mass space uh you'll notice that there is an absence of neptune sized worlds there is this lack of these planets that are close to their stars that are in the Neptune mass regime. And this has been called the Neptune desert. And the measurements that were made of this huge escaping atmosphere, along with uh, another planet that's been looked at in the same way, GJ436b, which is another Neptune sized world that's evaporating. They show, they seem to indicate that this escape of hydrogen, this, this dynamic loss of their atmosphere vast amounts of hydrogen escaping and potentially taking away heavier elements along for the ride this may lead to this desert this absence of these sized worlds uh, that we're seeing close to their star because if you've got a big world and it's not able to hold on to its atmosphere that atmosphere disappears so you don't end up with these types of worlds being observed so actually this is a really fortunate observation or it could be completely common but I feel like it's it's one of only a handful we can do this for where we're actually seeing something in action. We're seeing this planet evaporating and disappearing before our eyes. And that's something that I think is really important. And I found that absolutely fascinating that you could lose so much of your atmosphere uh, and we're actually able to see that, that happening right now. My understanding of the Neptune desert was also that it was, uh, or that it's also a formation thing. So there's only the, the bottom half of the Neptune desert, as we call it, that can be explained by planets losing their envelope. And then the top half is explained by the fact that you just can't form like this sort of mass planet that close to its star right, in of the course. first place. Yeah, and there's there's always these combined effects as well. It's talking about whether or not you've got this kind of transition region in between where you're forming these planets in abundance, but they're disappearing. And, and Actually, one of the big questions from that is whether or not there is a line, there is a difference, or if that's a mixed pool. Um, but also how, one of the things that we're learning from these types of observations is how quickly something can potentially lose its atmosphere. Because that timeline, that time period, uh, is really, really important for trying to understand whether or not that is the case. Because if we're seeing lots of these small planets, did they have the time to lose a significant portion of their atmosphere. So getting an understanding of that time signature is really important here. And I think that's what these kinds of UV studies with, with Hubble are doing. I was just going to ask about STIS because yeah. it's not used very often. And I've seen light curves with STIS. I mean, you go about 10 years and I didn't believe them. Really? They, they, lo they looked really like for WASP-12, they just don't look they don't have the signal to noise that you would expect for the like a I guess lime and alpha is extremely tricky right because, lime and alpha is a because really in that region you're like don't get flux you so the uv studies of these planets are limited to some of the closest stars that we have uh and that's because uv the stars drop off dramatically in the uv so they're their magnitude is very, very low, and the STIS throughput's not particularly high. Uh, so that means that the amount of information that we get from the stars isn't translated perfectly. We don't get a one-for-one one, uh, on what we're getting from the stars. So the instruments themselves are make it a little bit harder to do that. But STIS is really, at the moment, one of the only ways that we can look in this wavelength range where we can see that Lyman alpha and we can see that hydrogen escape. So we actually for uh, 3470 we had three observations of it in the uv um, and those multiple observations are all also really really important because you have to build up that signal to noise like you were saying so with the panset program there are a number of observations in the uv and each of them at least have two observations that are being made mm. 
But they, so we talked a few months ago to Jess Spake. Do you think that the method she used in finding helium would work for this planet as well? Because that was a big expansive atmosphere or exosphere of helium, right? Yeah, this is this is really potential target for searching for that helium signature as well. And I, I expect that this target is going to have a lot of uh, notice in the in the coming years because it's this it's in this sub-Neptune regime where, but it's also in this regime where we can observe it and we can make those observations of this this size of planet, which is one of a handful, less than a handful of planets that are in this characterization block that we can do. So uh, I expect it to be part of a number of things. It's, it's already on some of the GTO programs for the James Webb Space Telescope. So we're definitely going to be looking at it in more detail. So just in a more in a more general kind of sense, Hannah, losing, you know, between what, five and 35 percent of your mass over two billion years, what kind of effect is that going to have on the planet itself? How how its atmosphere circulates or, you know, any any surface features? I mean, this is a, a big world, so we know expecting it to be probably quite a thick atmosphere anyway. But is it going to have any effect on the planet beyond losing the atmosphere, if that makes sense? Yeah. So for this planet in particular, I'm, I'm not, I can't speak to it on an individual basis, but in sure. general, uh, as you think about it, so the lightest elements get taken away first. This is the hydrogen mm -hmm. and then the helium. Now, the question is, if you've got a large world and you start taking away that low uh, mass material, you end up with a much higher atmospheric metallicity because uh -huh. you're taking away mm -hmm. that light stuff. So actually the question comes down to, is the hydrogen taking anything else with it as well? Is it taking some of those heavy elements like this, the iron and the magnesium and the silicon? Is it taking that with it? And that's something that we're going to be actively investigating is whether or not we can see the escape of these heavier materials, because that might explain whether or not this planet should be expected to have an incredibly high metallicity, which actually reduces the scale height of the atmosphere, or if the amount of heavy materials is being uh, outgassed as much as the lighter materials in the same kind of ratios. So those are still really active questions, and we just don't know right now. And I mean, fascinating to think about, you know, from a theoretical point of view, what it might, you know, what that might do to the planet's geophysical processes, losing, you know, Huge yeah, if you were talking about a smaller planet where we potentially thought it had a core or a surface, then that's different. But we, we know mm. nothing about the... Exactly. This is a very large planet. This is a Neptune-sized world. This is not likely to have a substantial surface at any pressure that we can imagine. Um, yeah, so point. it's a very different type of world. But if you're talking about something that's more super Earth and has that bulk density, which suggests that it's predominantly rock or predominantly got this kind of core material then that's a completely different question where you have to consider surface interactions. But for this for this planet in particular, the depth of the atmosphere is, is such that we shouldn't have to consider those kinds of things. Ah, I see. So now it's time to adopt a planet and Lee Billings this month is going to be our adoptee, adopter, uh, adopter, let's say that. So what, what which yeah. planet have you chosen, Lee? So I have chosen uh, Barnard Star B. This wow. is a small planet, I think a super-Earth, so-called super-Earth, um, orbiting uh, a very nearby star to the sun, uh, and a so-called M-dwarf, uh, a very low-mass, uh, cool, dim, long-lived star. Uh, and I think it's about... How many light-years away is it, folks? You, you professional astronomers should know this off the back is of your head, like right? Five? Uh, right. Something, yeah, it's, circa it's five light-years. further light than Proxima, right? Yeah, it's quite close. It's very close. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find it very exciting because uh, you compare it with uh, the other very nearby um, potentially terrestrial, potentially habitable planet we know about, uh, Proxima B, around Proxima Centauri. And uh, I think that they, they form... Um, they, they form a nice set that we should study together and, and compare and contrast. Uh, now, of course, both of these planets uh, are orbiting um, these small, dim, red dwarf stars that are quite unlike our, our own star, our sun, um, which is a G-dwarf star. Um, so ideally, what I'd like to do is have, you know, a few more um, potentially habitable planets uh, around very nearby slightly more sun-like, slightly more massive stars, uh, the, the F stars, the G stars, the K stars. Um, and I really think once we could get something like that together, then we'd really be in a better place where we could do more uh, robust comparative planetology. Uh, but, but Barnard's star B is just a very interesting planet. It, it, it's, um, uh, I think, a testament to the strengths of um, the 
the, uh, the radio velocity method, the Doppler method that was used to find it. This is the method, as you all know, that uh, looks for little uh, wobbles in the star induced by the planet as it orbits around the star. Um, I can't quite remember the magnitude of the effect uh, for, for Barnard's star B, but it's, you know, it's very, very small on the order of tens of centimeters per second uh, walking speed. And you're detecting that for a star um, light years away. It's just kind of wild to me. And, and finally, you know, one thing that's particularly nice about Barnard's star and Barnard's star B is that this, this uh, star system has a very rich history in the context of planet hunting. Uh, it was uh, one of the premier targets for a long time for planet hunters uh, because there was an astronomer uh, named uh, Peter Vandekamp who thought that maybe there were, there were several planets around it that he had found them via a, a companion technique to the radio velocity method called astrometry, which also looks for stellar wobbles, but looks for the wobbles in the plane of the sky rather than in the... Um, uh, in, in kind of this radial back and forth motion um, in uh, yeah, I'm not really explaining that very well but anyway um, lots, lots to unpack there about Barnard Star B that's, that's the planet I'd like to adopt excellent we'll okay. put it right in the family a great choice uh, and also Lee uh, given your position in the you know in the zeitgeist and the your ability to kind of change public's perception we're trying to well at least me anyway I'm trying to advance the <laughs> idea of calling uh, Barnard Star B Barbie from now on no so. Barnaby Barnaby. Barnaby or Barnaby, Barnaby. yeah Barnaby. one of those two options I just think uh, Lee, given your position you could advance one of those two options you know going forward if you have a <laughs> I, right I, about I, this. I could we need to choose but, you know, which one I'm guessing I'm guessing that you know Ignacy Rebus and, and those folks might be a little upset with me if I try to they take might. the naming the naming from them um you know I I I, I feel very um agnostic uh, or ambivalent I guess about about yeah, ambivalence, right word about the naming of these worlds. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm actually much more. Uh, pref- I prefer to kind of keep them <laughs> by their catalog destinations. Just me personally, even though that can lead to some terrible, uh, um, you know, ugly names that don't really work very well. They don't roll off the tongue. That's true. Um, but but you know, I, I the reality is that there's there's more planets in the Milky Way um, than we have words for, right? And and, and so. Uh, we're going to have to let go at some point of this this urge to give each one some kind of special special moniker um, that that has some connection to our history or our culture. Um, yeah, it, it I, I don't know certainly what the makes my is, life but... easier if we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So because and you know you already see these weird kind of tempests in in a teapot that occur over naming of other things. Like uh, I mean the the ultimate Thule controversy that recently occurred with the uh, the New Horizons flyby of the Kuiper Belt object uh, MU-69, right? So MU-69 is what it's actually called, but the team called it Ultima Thule, and uh, I think because that that's like some kind of Norse, mythic Norse uh, Valhalla yeah, it's kind, kind of style. Yeah, it's kind of like a kind of... dark land somewhere distant away. Of course, you know, unfortunately, Ultima Thule has some um, kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah, white nationalist pol- connotations, Nazi connotations. Uh, so you know, you have to be careful of that kind of stuff because uh, I think I think to be fair, you know, people had to get pretty creative, uh, you know, connecting all the dots to really make a case for Ultima Thule being extremely um, offensive. Um, but but the point is, is that those dots exist; they can be connected, and and someone, if they try hard enough, will manage to be offended by almost any <laughs> any decision you make when it comes to uh, human affairs and applying labels, human labels to these objects. Right, well, thank you very much for adopting Barnard B, or Barbie, as we call it. (laughs) Or Barnaby, yeah, and and, you know, I will will try very hard. Yeah, Barnard star B is a bit of a mouthful, I agree, but I'm not sure I'd go as far as Barbie. I hope I'll be a good steward, a good parent. Um, and, you know, one thing I, I forgot to mention that I find so interesting about Barnard Star B is unlike Proxima B, uh, it looks like it has a pretty good chance of having retained more of its atmosphere. Um, I mean, and again, this is me, you know, going way out on a branch, um, saying things that I think a lot of theorists wouldn't say <laughs> because, um, you know, what, what what do I have to lose? Not much. Um, but if you look at the, the nature of the stars themselves, Proxima versus Barnard's, uh, as I understand it, it looks like Barnard's is relatively less active, kind of more quiescent. Um, and, and and so that would, I think, somewhat suggest that, that maybe, just maybe, uh, this world around Barnard's star might have held on to more of its atmosphere than the world around Proxima, where, you know, it's being bathed in these super flares all the time that can erode the atmosphere and be pretty bad news for life. And, and if we study these two worlds and, 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 and compare them, uh, and, and see whether or not they have atmospheres and what their atmospheres might be like, I think that would be a really valuable data point for give, answering this bigger question of how prevalent uh, Earth-like planets, whatever you want to 
define them as Earth-like planets, how, how common they might be in the, in, in the Milky Way. Because, uh, you know, if all the so-called Earth-like planets around M-dwarfs don't have any atmospheres, mm, that's, uh, that's going to hurt. And that's going to be bad news for all these missions people are planning that they're going to be focused almost exclusively on those kinds of stars. So, you know, I, I, yeah. I'm still in the camp of maybe uh, broadening our search and, and focusing on sun-like stars where we know for a fact at least one Earth-like planet does indeed exist. All right. Well, thank you very much again, Lee, for coming on the show. And it's been great to, my, great to speak to you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been a great show. Thank you to our special guest, Lee Billings, for, for chatting with us for so long. And thank you for joining us uh, on this nice installment of Exocast. We will be returning next month with some more Exoplanet news and views. And we will be joined by special guest Dr. Joe Barstow to talk about her work as well. So that's going to be really fun. So until then, you can check out all of our previous shows and go to our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook. So keep in touch and until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, bye. Bye. Exocast.